Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 20th, a Friday, 2023. Not perhaps the most cheerful of weeks when it comes to international politics. So we need a little bit of cheering up and who better than cheering, who better than uh, cheering us up? That's a terrible way of putting it, is my old friend Keith Tier, um, the CEO of SignalRank and the author of That Was The Week newsletter on developments in AI and technology this week. His uh, newsletter is entitled Optimism, Technology, and Progress. Mark Andreessen, Sam Altman, and Jeffrey Hinton, three very familiar names from uh, big tech and uh, AI. The image, Keith, though, is back to your old terrible AI art. Doesn't make me feel very cheerful. Why did you fall back on this one? Can't we have some real art? For the yeah, so, so, so you will you wouldn't notice it because I don't say so. But this is not mid journey. This is um, Chat GPT now includes Dali three. So this is my very first attempt to ask Dali three to make a front cover. Uh, all I did is tell it what the newsletter was about, and this is what it came up with. And for people viewing, you can see the image. For people just listening, there's a rather colorful image, very artificial, of a robot, a high-tech helicopter, some sort of alien object, and then some normal people, contemporary people, and some farmers and some trees. So it's not exactly innovative, Keith, is it? Well, it's meant to depict a leisure society where work no longer exists, so people can have a picnic, and the robots are doing all the work. The robots, it's true, the robots are doing all the work, although there's a lady carrying uh, some food. Who's growing the food in this? Where's the food coming from? One has to imagine that it's automatic agriculture and, and probably chemistry. You're beginning to make me a little bit more miserable. So cheer me up. The, the, the three essays this week are from Andreessen, Hinton and Altman. The first is a, a hardcore, almost a sort of... A, a hysterical manifesto, I think, from Mark Andreessen. What is Andreessen saying here that is in any way original? He, he, it's called the techno-optimist manifesto, but yeah. there's a certain kind of almost manic shrillness to this essay. I, I think it's kind of uh, Arrington-esque, uh, let's, let's say that. Which is, which is in, your, in your words, shrill, a, a, a manic shrillness. Well, on the plus side, deep belief and preparedness to put yourself out there, which which is another side of it. It's called the Techno Optimist Manifesto. So it isn't um, a narrative; it's a manifesto. And in the in the spirit of a manifesto, it's full of bullet points, beliefs, declarations, things not to believe in. So it it, it doesn't read as much more than um, a highly organized brain dump that is designed to get a response. I think that's really the, 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 the right framing. He's looking for a reaction and he's gotten one. 
there's a, lots and lots of feedback, including long pieces and then shorter tweets with opinions about what he said. So he's put himself in the middle of the debate about the meaning of progress and civilization. Uh, and, um, you know, if we get if we drill down into what he says, uh, I, I'd say, firstly, it's gotten a lot to uh, to give it credit for, but it's also got a lot of blind spots and some absolute incorrect points of view, all blended into one. So you really have to uh, unpack it. Well, it's classic Andreessen or classic Andreessen behaving like um, uh, your 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 friend who founded uh, TechCrunch, Mike Arrington. If it wasn't Mark Andreessen and it was some kid on the internet who has a, a Substack or a Medium page or a Twitter page, would anyone even read this stuff? That's what when I was reading, I was thinking. Yeah, kind of interesting, his argument. Well, we got to progress. Technology has always benefited mankind. I mean, it was profoundly unoriginal and childish, the whole thing, to me, anyway. What do I know? No, I, th I think you can make that case, and, and um, it would be hard to say you're wrong. But that's the interesting thing about the piece. You could make about seven different cases. And does he say on... anything interesting? I mean, what does he say in this piece, Keith, the... Um... This manifesto went on and on. He kept on repeating the same phrase. Is there anything original here that we haven't read or heard before? I think from a practical point of view, it forces you to grapple with the question whether technology could create abundance. And abundance meant fully as in the entire world can live free of need. That That's really what he's saying. Um, some of his critics... He's pretty anti-Marxist. He uses the accusation of communism quite a bit against his rivals. But there's quite a few people who have responded to it saying, actually, this almost is Marxist. This, this sense of a utopia um, that is going to follow from technical innovation, where the definition of utopia is freedom from work or, or the requirement to work. Yeah, at work. one point, I, I'm not sure if I'm quoting him exactly. He says... Um, we were hungry, therefore we created abundance. I don't see any evidence of abundance. Uh, many, many hungry people in the world today. Where's the abundance? Well, you've got to be historically specific, Andrew. I mean, if you look backwards, there's more. Well, there's more abundance, but it's not abundance. I mean. Yeah. No, but he's not really claiming we've reached that point. He's claiming we can. He's claiming it's possible. And, well, and no one would argue it's not impossible. But just I think many people would argue make it realistic. Well, no, there there are you know there's a whole narrative around the green movement that says the world needs two billion people, not seven billion, and that the way to get abundance is to kill kill off the population, not literally, but through birth control and such. So there 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 are many narratives, one, and one of the sustainability narratives is there's too many people. Andreessen argues there's going to be many more people and they'll all be supported through abundance due to technology. And I, I tend to side with him. Uh, some people would say that's utopian, but I, I think he's right. But again, coming back to this essay, is there anything, I mean, it's just this noisy, angry, angrily optimistic person, clearly out to outrage people. It's, is, is there any value in this sort of piece, apart from getting lots of Twitter retweets and all the rest of it? 
I mean, he's not, you say he got, he's a Marxist, I, he's not I, a Marxist. He's about as much of a Marxist as my dog or your cat. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, exactly. Or my dog and your cat. Yeah, um, I don't have a cat. And you have a dog, but exactly. you know my what son, we're talking about. My son and his girlfriend have a cat, a little kitten. Well, their cat is more Marxist or more anti-Marxist than Mark Andrews. Yeah. So, has he become uh, a parody of himself? I mean, here's well, a, a multi-billionaire VC. He knows what he thinks. Why does he even care about what other people think? Well, because I think he has an unfinished agenda, which you can give him credit for. He he is not, you know, sitting there, you know, patting his stomach, saying and he has quite a stomach, or patting his head. He's not saying, you know, I, I I'm good, I'm done. He's saying we collectively are not done, but we can be. And now, what is he trying to achieve here? His job, he has a few jobs. His first job is to attract capital to his fund. Mm. So the first thing he's trying to do is uh, say to those people who invest in funds, hey, I'm still here, I'm still alive, and I have a big project, and you can be part of it. The second thing he has to do is attract entrepreneurs who are thinking big. The, yeah. the, the biggest problem for an investor is to get lots of entrepreneurs who are thinking small. So you, you really have to encourage people to think big. Peter yeah. Thiel does that when he talks about dropping out of college and taking on big challenges. It's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but there's also a reality to it, which is please think big. Change something meaningful. And to be fair to Andreessen, uh, in contrast with a lot of the other bomb throwers, especially libertarian bomb throwers, he really has changed the world. I mean, if there's one figure or one company that, enabled the internet it was netscape so you've got to give the guy credit it's just there's something bizarre about him what about jeff jeffrey hinton very different kind of character a, a highly respected ai scientist who resigned from google uh i think it was earlier this year uh because he was troubled by some of the implications of generative ai what's jeffrey hinton been saying this week um, I included him because there was an interview, I think it was Fortune that published it, but uh, it doesn't matter. Somebody published the interview. And in the interview, he self-declared himself as a pessimist and went on to say that pessimists are usually right. And uh, the context was his belief that uh, generative AI has produced too much intelligence to such an extent that it endangers uh, humanity because it can do things we can't. And honestly, I I, I can't take him seriously, personally. Uh, you can take him less or more seriously than Mark Andreessen. Le le way less seriously than Mark Andreessen because he's abandoning ship. He's, he's like the captain that's saving himself in the middle of the storm. And, and and well, I don't think that's fair. I mean, he's he's making these pronouncements. He's decided he didn't want to work for Google, but he's not abandoning the ship. Well, no, it's like the the Titanic is halfway across, and he's gotten um, a lift back to England, and he's saying it's bound to it's bound to sink. Um, you know, he's he's safe on the uh, back on shore, saying it's bound to sink. Yeah, I don't think that's fair. I mean, he could have he's not safe or otherwise, and he wouldn't have been safe or otherwise if he'd have stayed at Google. He just chose to, to resign. He, and, and I'm guessing that there's a, a bigger story there, a political story internally at um, at Google. But Yeah, but, uh, but you know, it's in the spirit of that was the week. I publish things I disagree with. You know, so, well, so is he's 
He's fearful of too much intelligence rather than not enough. He's fearful of too much intelligence and human uh, humans uh, freed from work is a plus for Andreessen. Humans replaced by AI is a minus for Hinton. So it's it, it's kind of a, a binary decision. Is it good or bad if AI takes over work from humans? I don't and think either. Jeffrey Hinton or Mark Andreessen are particularly well equipped to address those issues. The reason, by the way, Jeffrey Hinton is is a pessimist is because he's a big Spurs fan. So <laughs> we are all pessimists. I know the guy. He's a nice guy. Um, and he may do something else. I mean, I'm sure he'll get involved with somebody like Gary Marcus, some institute focusing on the responsibilities of AI. So I think you're being a little unfair to suggest that uh, he abandoned the Titanic. And are you suggesting then that Google was the Titanic or is the Titanic? Google has definitely got some holes. Um, that, like, that, like, like the Titanic. Yeah, uh, it, it, it could be an endangered, an endangered species. Yeah, uh, but that's another issue. You're talking about the corporate Google. We're talking about the Titanic in terms of sinking humanity. I mean, yeah, no, I, I, if, if there is a company that's going to sink humanity, it's it's Sam Altman's AI, OpenAI. It's not Google. They're second at best in this race. Yeah, or, or save humanity either way. That's that that's the binary decision. I mean, you, I don't think you can be in the middle of that discussion. You know, I, you know, I, yeah, and I, I think, Keith, I mean, you're a... His, li, historically literate enough man to understand that we've often believed that we're on the verge of the apocalypse of one kind or another. And this is probably no different, is it? No, but, you know, I think, uh, I don't know if you saw Biden's speech last night, but it, it was masterful, uh, for especially for a, a, an aging gentleman as he is. It was a very good speech, but the core of that speech was we can decide the future if we choose to. And I think that's massively true in tech. Tech is one place that humans are 100% in control and capable of making decisions. And, and the decision to uh, stop seems to be about the worst decision you could make. Uh, the decision should be to progress. And, and, and that's where, you know, technology and human end games converge in the meaning of progress. So I, th I, I do think that this is not the time to be doomsayers or, or, or Luddites even, the worse than doomsayers. Well, we are talking with Keith Tier, the CEO of Signal Rank and the author of the invaluable That Was The Week newsletter, All Things Tech. We talked, Keith, about Mark Andreessen and um, Jeffrey Hinton, one an optimist, one a pessimist. The third figure in your headlines, and I know you're a big admirer, we've done lots of shows on him in the past, is Sam Altman. Is Sam Altman someone who exists between Andreessen and Hinton? Is that the best way, the best spin on, on, on Altman? I think spiritually he's closer to Andreessen. But he's a practical, um, he's a practical uh, implementer of AI as opposed to a pontificator. So he gets to 
push the buttons and twist the levers of, of how fast or slow AI goes. He's in the lead globally by far and no sign of him slowing down. So he was interviewed this week at the Wall Street Journal's um, uh, Tech Live conference, along with his CTO, uh, who, who's a woman, great woman, Mira. And um, the Doesn't topic- the last name? Uh, it's Marabi or something like that. I'm, I'm blanking on her last you name. Prefer, I bet you prefer her to Lena. Well, she's a technologist at the center of AI, so she's clearly <laughs> she's clearly got some credentials. Um, she she's done more than write a PhD thesis. Um, okay, and that's Lena Khan for this week. So, um, so what was Sam Altman? What, what, so I mean, the headline, I mean, is 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 like uh, that famous headline from the Times, the most boring headline in history: earthquake in Chile, people injured. I mean. Sam Altman warning that AI is going to destroy a lot of people's jobs isn't exactly news. Everybody knows that. Well, in, in, in a week where the media was shown to be um, uh, opinion-focused, not news-focused, uh, it's worth saying the Wall Street Journal determined the content of this interview, not Altman. So the Wall Street Journal chose to drill down into... But it's their conference, so they should. Yeah, but the so the headline is really you should credit the Wall Street Journal with the headline. Not so what did he say in in the interview he, that he, was interesting? He, he said that the destruction of jobs is a human good. So normally, you know, normally the assumption is when a job is destroyed, that's bad, uh, and 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 that emotional response to job destruction is incorrect, historically incorrect. Job destruction destruction is the most progressive thing humans can do because it replaces human effort with some kind of automation or replacement and 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 so he made the point job destruction is is a good thing and yes ai will destroy jobs and that will free time for people to find new roles in, including possibly jobs although mark andreessen envisages a, a further stage when there's no need to work, when work is optional, not required. And, and, and so both of them are on this, a part of this conversation that tries to uh, uh, give meaning to uh, creative destruction. A and I think Altman is actually doing it, whereas Andreessen is imagining it. Well, they're both profiting from it. I mean, Andreessen's profiting it from it from his investments, Altman by running OpenAI. Okay, he may not own stock, but he, as he said, he's so wealthy, he doesn't need to. Uh, so what, what about the issue? Did, did either of them, Andreessen or Altman, address the fact that while all this technological progress is going on, we have more and more inequality and more and more sharp, a sharp cleavage between a tiny group of billionaires and multi-billionaires and an yeah. underclass and, and, and a and a shrinking middle class? Well, that that's a good question, Andrew. And that's where I take the discussion in my editorial. Altman and, and Andreessen are actually completely different when it comes to the consequence of abundance. They both tend to agree that technology will lead to abundance. And what they mean by abundance is an unlimited supply of things that don't does not require human labor to produce. All the needs of life and then some. Mm. And, 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 and 
Andreessen has this kind of capitalist utopian vision that doesn't even ask the question, who owns the benefits of that? He, he just assumes that the market and capitalism is the right mechanism. Uh, and he doesn't even discuss who owns the outputs. Um, to his credit, Altman says, this will lead to a broken society if all the wealth remains in the hands of the producers, the, the, the owners of production. And he goes some way towards um, having an idea of how you would fix that. The, the first is universal basic income derived from the wealth created. Mm. And the second is some kind of social tax on automated profits where the proceeds of those profits go to society, broadly speaking, hospitals, roads, schools, what, what have you. Um, and so Altman at least has, and, he, and he's built a company called WorldKind that's part of that effort. Uh, he has a, at least addressed the question. Andreessen is more in a, a kind of a, a, a capitalist libertarian mode where he assumes there is no problem to solve, or at least he's silent on it. Yeah, and it's he's angrily silent. He's not willing to even acknowledge it. I'm I wonder whether privately he he does recognize it. This is all very abstract and important, and I think you present Altman fairly. I think Altman is hopeful and perhaps the most responsible people of, of people in Silicon Valley. It'd be interesting to see how his story plays out. We certainly haven't heard the the last of Sam Altman. In fact, if anything, I think we, we, he has much of his story to to go. Um, and we've done shows in the past on on Sam Altman. You've always been a big admirer. Meanwhile, Keith, for all the theory, there's still reality. John Thornhill, my friend at the FT, the tech uh, writer, columnist, and entrepreneur himself, has an interesting piece, which I thought really kind of reflected what you've been arguing over the last few months, or indeed even years, about the VC industry needing to rip up the playbook and start again. Did you like the Thornhill piece? Um, you know, it's probably he, obvious to you because you've been thinking it, but yeah, yeah, I, I thought it was good. You know, I like, I like his publication. It's called Sifted. It's a UK, um, digital magazine focused on venture capital, particularly European venture capital. So he, he is, um, a trailblazer when it comes to the narrative around venture capital. And I thought he summarized things fairly well. I think if you added in this week's video of the week, which is an interview with Beza Clarkson from Sapphire Partners talking about the same subject. And she's a practitioner. She invests in early stage funds. Mm. Um, you would get a, a very good sense of where things are at. Broadly characterized, it is that the, the oil that fuels venture capital and startups has stopped flowing. And, and of course, that means money has stopped flowing in all directions. There are very few exits, so money isn't going back to the investors. Uh, therefore, they're not investing as much in new initiatives. And so, the, the, you know, the, the cogs are, are kind of grinding and creating friction. And, and I think they both focus on uh, the, the, the details of that. In the case of Beza Clarkson, a lot of details. It's uh, over an hour yeah, long. Yeah, I, I think that the... Um... For, for our viewers and listeners, I mean, I know we have some of your followers, Keith, who know a lot about this stuff, but for ordinary people, the um, the Thornhill piece was good. And, it, and it's reflected in one piece of news this week that 
the biggest IPOs of 2021 have already shed 60% of their value. That's astonishing. Yeah, well, it, well, it kind of shows the mismatch between private and public markets. Uh, public markets are still, you know, today the 10-year bond went above 5% and the, the uh, Dow dropped 100 points because investing in equities is no longer the only game in town. There was a great piece this week by the CEO of Oaktree, which I, I didn't put in the newsletter, but it talks about private credit yields being at roughly 8 to 10% a year. So if you invest in private credit over 10 years, you're going to get 10% every year compounded. And that's better than the S&P 500. So the whole narrative is that investing in risk through equities, public equities in particular, may not be the best way to grow your money. And private, private markets have, you know, even though they're depleted, uh, they haven't really caught up with that narrative. So surprisingly, seed uh, prices for seed investments are the highest ever. They haven't gone down. Uh, it's very competitive because more and more people... You're still dealing with human beings who think they know everything and think that they're going to discover the next Google or Amazon or something. So that that's never going to change for all the the numbers, all the statistics that... that uh, Guys like you at um, at Signal Rank uh, have researched. Them. People are not driven by reason, are they? When it comes to investment, they're all they all think they're smarter and more prescient than they actually are. Well, on both sides, there's smart pessimists and smart optimists. Uh, so, so everything is driven by self belief. It's interesting. Uh, I went to a, an MIT. Uh, gathering this week in Palo Alto, about 50 people. And one of the questions was, is there an AI bubble? And um, You don't have to go to MIT to ask that question. Well, funnily enough, their answer was no. I think I was the only person in the room whose answer was yes. You think there is, even though last week you talked about OpenAI being the most valuable company on the planet in five years' time, and you talked about them yeah. raising... Well, billion in the well, next that, round. well, that's the interesting conundrum. Bubbles happen when real value is being produced. So the fact that OpenAI is real and probably super valuable attracts capital to, to everything in the space. And so the bubble is a, actually a positive signal of something real. Uh, and it gets overextended you know, as is normal in human nature, uh, greed leads to exuberance. And in other words, your title of your newsletter this week, Optimism, Technology and Progress. Yeah. And so, certainly there was not a lot of optimism or progress today and uh, this week in the Middle East. Uh, tech has always found its way to get into the story. Uh, lots of uh, Lots of anger particularly in, in the United States, between people sympathetic to Israel and to the Palestinians, and even Paddy Cosgrave, the CEO of Web Summit, who we all know, he somehow got, he got embroiled in it. I mean, if Paddy's involved in it, then God knows what's happening. What was this story? So, so Cosgrave's Web Summit, for those who don't know, is one of the largest tech conferences on earth, and it, and it isn't in the United States. He's an Irishman. And he's somehow managed to put himself in the middle of tech, uh, 
and, and it's an event everyone goes to. Because he's Irish and Catholic, his view of uh, conflicts involving, um, uh, let's say, ethnic or religious division is very personal. And, and he made the point uh, in a week where it was there was not enough intellectual space to make this point. He made the point that there are victims on all sides in Israel. Uh, in a week where really, you know, Hamas's brutality should have meant, at least for the time being, there is only one side. And he got punished. Well, that's your opinion. Yeah, that's, mean, my, no, that's my opinion. And now, now that doesn't mean I'm not aware of the bigger context and the issue of, of, of Palestinians. Of course I am. But what happened on the 7th of December is not justifiable in any way. Now, unfortunately, he says something quite reasonable but at the wrong time, and he is effectively being cancelled for saying it. And I, I have some sim sympathy for him, uh, even though I diplomatically I would not have said what he said. I completely understand why he said it. I don't think there's anything particularly wrong about it, but it is what it is. I mean, and we can see from the on-the-ground stuff that the future of that region really relies on understanding the whole context. Um, yeah, which goes without saying, I don't want to get into that story, but it certainly reflects on the way in which social media, there was already a crisis in social media. This is intensified. You have a couple of pieces from Om Malik about social media, <coughs> excuse me, social media being dead, get over it. And uh, social media is history. Just ask the kids. Do you think that this week when historians of technology and social media look back, they will see it as a a particularly dark moment in the history of social media? Well, I, I think Ohm is hitting on something that as soon as you read it, you, you recognize it to be true. He's making the point that the two biggest um, tech stacks being used today by young people are YouTube and TikTok, neither of which is social media. They're both entertainment, short-based short entertainment, sometimes longer. That certainly rings true for my kids, as I see what they're doing. They're not on Twitter. They're not on Facebook. They're, ba they're barely on Snap. They're a little bit on Instagram if they have friend networks there. But the majority of their time is watching live streams or um, on-demand stuff on TikTok and YouTube. And that isn't social media. That is one-directional entertainment, not two-directional engagement. And, and that is that is interesting. I, I think for the purposes of impact, OM over states, what that means for social media, because social media still exists and is still huge. It, it's just not where the action is for young people. And I think that's, that's, um, that's a key learning. And it means the future of, the future of uh, consumer tech, especially in the age of AI, is that it's going to be reinvented. You know, the, the Facebook and Twitter don't represent an end game. They rep and, and because of AI, they're not even on the journey to the end game. They're, they're kind of stuck in, in the past. Ever the optimist, Keith. I hope you're right. And certainly, I'm far less optimistic than you, on, certainly on tech. But I was encouraged by your startup of the week. This product, Pebble, looks very cool. Tell me about it. 
Well, Pebble is basically an electric caravan. Uh, 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 That's a lot of Iowa, and it, well, it looks like a very high-tech mod, uh, postmodern caravan. It's a high-tech postmodern caravan, exactly what it is. It has battery storage with a regular EV charging port. Uh, it's got tech. There's an app uh, inside that you can sleep. There's a king-size bed. You can cook. You can relax and be entertained uh, with streaming video and such with Wi-Fi. Uh, it costs $125,000 to pre-order one. Which isn't uh, a lot. I mean, it's not much more than a Tesla. It, it's a bit more than a Tesla. But, you know, if you have this yearning to go to uh, the Grand Canyon or drive across Route 66, this would be the perfect way to do it. Um, and it's uh, the way they present it as, as an office or a rental space or even a backup battery. Tell me a little bit about the company. Have they got a lot of financing? Uh, they've they haven't got a lot of financing. Uh, I think they just raised forty million, uh, but they've got enough to to complete their 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 product. The, these are former EV guys from Tesla and also from um, Cruise, so they're, they're they're skilled technologists in the electric vehicle world. So they're credible technologists, and they look like they've got great design chops. Yeah, they're... the design is. I mean, just. Just looking at the the website, it looks incredible. How big yeah. is it? It well, it can fit a king size bed in about a third of the space. So if you can imagine that, we're like between the back end and just before the wheels there, that's a king size bed. And then there's a the next third is a kitchen, and then the third at the front is a leisure sitting area. Where no, it is eat. a caravan. It doesn't go on its own. It has to be dragged by something. It else. has to be dragged by an EV, and they can share the batteries. By the way. Yeah, it looks very cool. I think it's the kind of thing that will attract younger people and older people like you and I, Keith. I think I'm going to buy one. How much did you say? 125,000? I think it starts at just under that, but by the time you've built the options in, it's it's 125 or maybe. Are you? I, I assume you ordered one, maybe two, one for you, one for Janet. I, I, I didn't order one because I'm not yet at the age where I want to, you know, be free of labor and uh, live a life of leisure. So if I was, well, I isn't this gonna, we'll all be able to, if Mark Andreessen's right, we'll all be able to own a pebble and just drive around and look out, out the window and have fun, right? Exactly, with the robots doing the work. Right, that's of course the image that you have, this idyllic, bucolic image, futuris, futuristic, buc bucolically futuristic. Finally, back to the real, real world, the X of the week from um, a man who is about as realistic as anyone, Oren Hoffman, a, a hardcore marketing sales guy. What does Oren say this week? I love this. Most success in, in life is just following up with people at least 20 times. That's why no one likes Oren, because he gets on your nerves. Well, you know, there's so much truth in that, what, what he says. I, I um because of my role at Signal Rank, I, I'm reaching out to investors a lot, and you often don't get a response. And it's super easy to think that the reason they're not responding is they're not interested, when in fact the most likely reason is they didn't notice that you tried well, to. That's get... the thick-skinned sales guy in you. I mean, yeah. some people are just irritated and will eventually block you. Yeah, but mo most people, if you're nice and reasonable, will give you. It's easier to say no then blank somebody and they keep pinging you. So I think ultimately, 
if there's a relationship there, it's not a, like a cold sales call, but you're talking to somebody that knows who you are and what you do, uh, you will eventually get either a yes or a no. And I don't suppose Oren is in the Mark Andreessen camp. I assume that guys like him believe that there'll always be sales. There'll always be things to sell and buyers and sellers and markets. Yeah, Oren is one of the cleverest market makers in the world. He's 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 a serial market maker and um, controversial, though. Not everyone admires him. I like him. He invested in one of my companies and he was a super good investor. So, uh, Keith, for the moment, at least, we're stuck with, for better or worse, we're stuck with Oren Hoffman's world of most of success in life is just following up with people at least 20 times. We've got to put uh, Mark Andreessen and Sam Altman on the back burner. Is that right? Exactly not. <laughs> but Altman, Altman probably agrees with that. He's, he's persistent, and, and so is Andreessen. Persistence is uh, a, super, a super skill. 